This is episode 59 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest today is making his debut on the podcast. He's the play-by-play voice of the Saskatchewan Rush, as well as a host and producer with 630 Ched and World Hockey Report, Cody Jansen. Cody, how's it going today? Doing great. Doing great. What do you say? Episode 59? Does that mean this is like the... Was it Travis Mullen? Does Roman Yossi still wear 59? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, a buddy of mine... Brian Swain, who uh, was with TSN 1260 for a long time and now is with the Edmonton Elks. Whenever I have him on the show, we always try to figure out a player uh, number that matches up when he's been on. So it's kind of interesting you said that. <laughs> well, that's where my mind goes right away. Is I do think Yossi wears 59, actually. I'm not he sure does. if there's anyone else in the league right now we're rocking and, it. And good tie-in with uh, the fact that the Oilers played the Predators last night. Well, the the Preds attempted to play the Oilers, but they can never beat Leon Dreisaitl. <laughs> that is true. He is the mayor of Nashville. Uh, well, I've been looking forward to having you on the podcast for a while, and I think you're only the second guest I've ever had on with a connection to Saskatoon. So it's cool to chat with someone who spent a, a bit of time in my hometown as well. Well, I'm from Warman, if I actually have to get into a little bit more detail here. But yes, I was born in Saskatoon. I don't think Warman had a hospital or even has a hospital. But nope, Saskatchewan guy through and through. Obviously, you know, being in Alberta, working up here, it's it's a great hockey market. But Sask definitely holds that that soft spot in my heart. And I think Saskatoon is one of the more underrated cities in Canada. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it's it's one of the hidden gems of, of Western Canada, for sure. My grandma actually lived in Warman for most of her life, and I, I spent a lot of time out there as a little kid in the 90s, but in the last 25 years, I haven't made as many trips out there. I've played a couple men's league games at the arena out there, but that's about it. Uh, I, Have you ever played in the old barn there? No, just the oh, new one that they built. Oh, that's a special one. <laughs> I, I I don't know when they built the the new one. Sometime I think in the last ten years or so, and uh, it seems pretty nice out there. Oh yeah, no no, they got a great new barn there. I think they got a they got under eighteen AAA team and stuff and everything now, so they could probably have an SJ team if they wanted. But I guess that comes mm-hmm. down to fan support. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, being a, a SAS guy and and living in Alberta now, you know all about the uh, harsh winters we have here. But uh, I, I know that uh, you were actually uh, in California last week as the the Rush were playing uh, in San Diego. So are you missing that uh, Southern California weather yet? You know, I like the warm weather, but I also like winter. I, I know everyone's mm-hmm. going to be like, "You're lying! You're lying! You're full of it!" Like, I, there's nothing more that I enjoy than just going to, you know, clear my mind and going and skating on an outdoor rink, empty outdoor rink. You know, nice minus ten weather, no wind, something like that. There's nothing better. So I, I actually do like generally enjoy winter. Now I'm not going to sit here and say, Oh, I love it when it's minus 30 and it's a blizzard outside. Like, no, I don't think anyone enjoys that, but I would miss winter if I had to live down there full time. 1000%. Yeah. And Cody, I, I can tell that you and I are cut from the same cloth because I have that same mentality. You know, I, I love winter cause it's hockey season and I'm, I mean, I still get out to the outdoor rink all the time. And, you know, growing up uh, here, that was a big part of the winters with buddies or like you said, skating out there on your own is, is great too. So I think I would miss living in a place that I didn't have a, an outdoor rink five minutes from my house, wherever and, and that I could drive to. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I love California too, and I could easily spend a, a couple weeks down there every year. 
Oh, a couple of weeks without a doubt. But um, if I had to sit there over summer, though, when it's like plus 40, yeah. no thanks. Count me out. Uh, I'm not making it through a summer. I've I've been, uh, I, I think I've I've made seven trips there in my life, but they've all been sort of either fall or springtime. So you, you don't get probably as many crowds when you go to places when it's, you know, July or August. And like you said, you don't have to deal with the absolutely scorching heat that they would get at that time. Definitely. Uh, actually, a funny story about scorching heat. A few years ago, probably before the pandemic, I think 2019 or so, went to Chicago, went to a ball game, okay. plus 45. We're wow. sitting in Wrigley Stadium, melting into the seats. Absolutely miserable. From there on out, I was just like, I'm not made for the heat. Like, I'll take <laughs> minus 45 over plus 45 any day. I think also because we're accustomed to it. We grew up in it, right? Fair. Yeah, and you hear people from California complain about uh, a plus seven day in January. That's their winter. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, um, before we get into talking about uh, some Oilers talk today, I, I just wanted to hear a little bit about your broadcasting career with the Rush. So, uh, <clears throat> was calling play by play always what you wanted to do in the broadcasting field? And have you always had an interest in lacrosse as well? In the broadcasting field, 1,000%. I mean, you know, have I always wanted to be a play-by-play broadcaster? No, as a kid, I think everyone wants to be the next Gretzky, right? Like, that's <laughs> every Canadian kid's dream. So, you know, I, I knew I wanted to get into media. I knew I wanted to get into broadcasting. Exactly how, I wasn't quite sure, but... Once you start to think about it and, and you think about some of those core memories that you have as kids, it's what did I love? And I loved listening to sports games on the radio. You know, I love watching them on TV, but I also think that there's such a special spot in, in just those storytellers who can be, you know, accurate play-by-play callers that can really paint that picture for the listener. And so being on that side of the broadcast was always something I really, really wanted to get into. And then, you know, I, I just didn't grow up with lacrosse as a kid. I grew up south of Swift Current on a farm where no one knew what lacrosse was. I bet you if you went and polled my school of 100 kids back in the day and asked them, like, what lacrosse was or any simple rules of it, there's probably 1%. And it was probably me, the 1% that actually <laughs> knew about it. So it was just such a foreign concept back then. But now seeing the game take off and everything, I, I always loved it. I, You know, growing up, I'd watch my cousins play. I had a lacrosse stick. I was always shooting around over summer. Like, I, again, I knew the game was something that I was really passionate about. but. Once you get older, you kind of realize you're like, I want to be in an industry where I love showing up to work. I, I think that that's kind of what everyone wants. And I mean, just lacrosse was always the goal of mine. It, it was always something I loved doing, whether it was junior, senior, international, NLL. There's just nothing like calling a lacrosse game. It's the fastest game on two feet. And so it was just a no brainer to step into it. Well, that's awesome that you had this love for the game going back to when you were a kid. And, you know, even thinking back to when I was in elementary school, I think there was only one kid in my class who played lacrosse. And, you know, we would play it in gym class as part of the curriculum for two weeks out of the, the school year. But other than that, I really didn't know about a lacrosse league in Saskatoon for youth or just, you know, you'd see highlights on uh, the major sport networks of, you know, the NLL, but it, it just, it, it didn't seem like 
they covered it very extensively. It was it was a little further down the ticker than you know ho- hockey, basketball, baseball, bas- uh, football, and just it it really seems to have grown. And and now you look at it with how well it's been embraced in Saskatoon. I mean, the rush. I mean, you could speak to this probably better than anyone. The the popularity of of this team in this city since they came here from Edmonton. Wow, yeah, the lacrosse has grown huge, and you got to credit the Rush and, and the Urbans for moving the team from Edmonton to Saskatoon for sure. But now even with the job the Priestners are doing, they continue to grow it. They continue to, you know, when you talk about building at the grassroots level, that's where you truly build your fans. And that's something I love that the new ownership is doing. They're getting out. They're going to different communities. They're really engaging that fan base where at the start, it's easy to bring in fans when you win, right? You know, 2016, yeah, they're exactly. champions in Saskatoon. 2017, they go to the final. 2018, they end up winning again. That's easy to bring in fans. But what do you do when you aren't the champions of the league? You know, you really have to expand that fan base. And that's what I love about, you know, what the Rush are doing now. And that's why, you know, I'm all aboard with it. But I also you- think it is just, you know, growing that game and hitting more people because it is they're they're such a popular team where now everyone knows who the Saskatchewan Rush are. But you got to take that next step. You got to continue to grow. You got to continue to expand. You know, you you got to market it. You got to sell it. Does what makes lacrosse the game you should be checking out? You know, why should you come to a Saskatchewan Rush game versus watching the Saskatchewan Rough Riders or going mm-hmm. to a Western Hockey League game? You know, what makes it worth the drive in from North Battleford when you can stay at home and watch your local junior team or you can come to one of the best parties in Saskatchewan and come check out a rush game. Right. Like it's it's all that little niche stuff that lacrosse has that nothing else does. Oh, for sure. And in a city like Saskatoon, where we don't have an NHL team. Uh, you you have the Saskatoon Blades who are having a great year themselves, and you know they're somewhat of a draw. And then you also have during the football season the U of S Huskies. But the Rush kind of play in the winter when the football season isn't going on, and it's on different <clears throat> nights than the Blades, so they don't really have to compete locally in the market. And it's like you said when they when they showed up, I believe they won the championship in Edmonton the year before in 2015 as well. So a really great team is your foundation to start with. And like you said, the first year they're here, they win another championship. So I I would say that probably helped build the fan base uh, right from the very start to have this successful team. Definitely. It helps, right? You know, (laughs) winning cures all in a sense of you Mm -hmm. got started off on the right foot, but it also does help too, that the fans, you know, I I think of one of the first games, I don't know if it was a preseason or if it was just the first game that they were actually there. You know, I think there was only about 8,000 people or so in Sastel center and yeah, it's a good sized crowd, but it's also not packed to the brim and every single person was talking about it. You know, everyone And again, that's the time of like Facebook's heydays, right? Like it was all over social media. You have to check out the rush. You have to do it. And that's why it takes off, right? Word of mouth. Exactly. And and hopefully it's just going to continue to grow from here. And and look, there are some similarities between hockey and box lacrosse. But what, if any, do you think are the biggest differences between doing play-by-play for the two sports? Hockey's got a little bit of a better flow to it or or it's a little more flow versus lacrosse where it is it's almost a hybrid of hockey and basketball you've got those you know the set scoring games right 
yeah, really high scoring games. Like you'll see 20 to 25 goals a game, but I guess just calling it wise, I I think that the transitions can be faster from lacrosse to hockey where, you know, you you can get a stretch pass in hockey that goes 150 feet, but generally they're going to have to corral the pass. They're going to have to get something set up. You know, you got to make sure it's a little tougher to balance on skates, whatever it is. It's Mm -hmm. a little slower. That in lacrosse where, I mean, you can just whip at 175 yards. You've got someone in transition off the bench and boom, they've got five steps for a breakaway. You know, it's it makes it that much tougher to call, but it's also it's part of the challenge. It's part of the craft, which is why I love it, because how do you describe it to someone listening at home who's either watching on TV or they're listening? You know, it's how can you accurately describe and depict what's going on? And for lacrosse, I think it is still a niche sport where the terminology has yet to fully evolve into, you know, your regular fan bases. So being able to mix in a little bit of that and being able to talk through some of those situations, that's the challenging part as a broadcaster where it is still a niche sport. I mean, the team's only been in Saskatoon for six years. You know, we can't act like it's been around for 30 years. So it's definitely still a growing fan base, but that's a part of the fun as well. That's, you know, again, I still consider myself a, a fan in a sense of, you know, I was at those championships. I was loving lacrosse when the Edmonton Rush were good, when they were building back in 2012. Like that's that's kind of some of the stuff that got me into the game. So to be able to work in it now, you know, that's the goal. That's the dream. Oh, for sure. And and hearing you describe the differences, it, to me, it sort of uh, reminds me of the difference between calling uh, ice hockey and ball hockey, which I've done both. And I'm actually doing the Saskatoon uh, Ball Hockey League Fall League Championships uh, this Saturday. So, yeah. And uh, I mean... There are differences as well, like the floating blue line. Like once you gain the blue line, you have the whole half. I mean, there there's little things like that that are just different. And and when you're when you're not on skates, the game doesn't move as quick. So, I, I mean, I like the the challenges of doing both sports as well. But I think because ice hockey is the game that I grew up with and and know the best, it, it just feels a little more comfortable to call it. Oh, definitely. Again, if you would have asked me. Five, ten, no, five to seven years ago, I probably would have said hockey's still my wheelhouse. But yeah, you know, once you start working in it with the junior levels, you know, six, six, seven years ago in Edmonton area, like you know, you start to get adapted, you start to adjust. I think ball hockey's probably a fair comparison. I, I think the biggest difference as well is there's just not these. I don't know how to nonsensical stoppages. Like once you watch hockey after lacrosse and you're like, I hate offsides. I hate icing. I hate, <laughs> yeah. like there's so many whistles and stoppages that are just annoying. They're just nuisances. Where in lacrosse, your main stoppages are goals or penalties. They're really not stopping for much else. They keep the flow going very well. They keep the games short, condensed, tight. There's no nonsense. You know, it, it really is. I, I mean, it's just the best sport on two feet in my mind. No, you you described it so well there. And, uh, you know, since joining the Rush, do you have a favorite game or favorite moment that you've called? Oh, favorite moment. I I think it's got to be, you know, the the overtime winner last year again in Saskatoon against Colorado. Robert Church has a five goal game, wins it in overtime. Colorado, you know, they end up going and winning you know, the league that year, but it was just such a game. It was such a back and forth effort. Eric Penny's first game in Saskatoon, 
you know, that that was definitely the high point of home wins last season. There was nothing more fun than that. It was Sashtel Center's rock, and you know how it is with Rush fans. Like, they're as electric as it comes. And so, you know, it's pretty much you think of Ryder fans and you stick them inside a building and, and make them louder. You know, that's what Rush Nation is. So to get an overtime game that Saskatchewan wins, that was definitely the high point. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, hopefully there's going to be many more big moments for the rush this season and looking forward to hearing you on the call. Uh, All right. So the Edmonton Oilers picked up a big 6-3 road win of their own last night to improve their record on the season to 17-13-0. The top line of Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl and Zach Hyman combined for 13 points in the victory. Uh, Cody, the Oilers have had to make adjustments to their lineup due to several injuries up front. But as dominant as McDavid and Dreisaitl are together, would you split them up or should the Oilers keep them together on a regular basis this winter? I've always been a big proponent and anyone who's listened to, you know, Oilers now and stuff over summer, I think you play them together. I think you let them run. Yes, they can drive their own lines. And I think there is a time and a place for everything. But especially if you're going through struggles, which the Oilers were, hey, this is not a a 500 hockey team. This is not a team that should be floating around there. So what do you do to change the pace of things? Stack up your big line. Let your big guns go to work. They should be giving you three goals a game, two to three at least, with those big names of Drysdale, McDavid, Hyman together, right? So I have no issues playing them together. What I don't like is... When they struggle, and again, it felt like there was some times, even against Colorado, maybe even Calgary in the playoffs, where you just felt like they couldn't drive their own lines at times. It felt like they didn't have enough firepower to get past top defensive pairings. And that's nothing against McDavid or Drysaddle. It's not a shot at them. But I would like to see them load up that top line a little quicker. Maybe that's Jay Woodcroft, you know, being a little hesitant to pull the trigger at first, but I have no issue in loading up that line, especially once you get the likes of Evander Kane back, right? Once you get the likes, Mm. even getting guys like McLeod and Fogel is going to help shore up your bottom six. And so if you've got that luxury of a strong top six, you can load up that top line and your second line should still be able to contribute with one a night. Oh, definitely. And I mean, how much fun was it to watch those two in the playoffs last year? And the crazy thing is that if Mikey Anderson didn't injure Leon Dreisaitl in the first round of the playoffs, they never would have even been paired together. But because Dreisaitl was playing on one leg, they couldn't have him at center. He had to be on McDavid's wing for the rest of the playoffs while he was recovering from a high ankle sprain and he continued to play on it for over a month. I mean, it's just it's hard to imagine how he was able to play, let alone dominate under those circumstances. But, you know, as fun as it is to watch the two best offensive players in the league play together on the same line, I think McDavid and Dreisaitl need to be centering their own lines to reach their ultimate goal of winning a Stanley Cup. And yes, they still can play together on every power play, but the Oilers are a tougher team to beat, I believe, when they have McDavid and Dreisaitl driving their own lines. Now, I'm fine if they play together on occasion during the regular season, especially when they're going up against weaker opponents where McDavid and Dreisaitl can just overwhelm them with their elite skill. But until Evander Kane returns to the lineup, I think you could still make a pretty strong top six with 
uh, McDavid, Hyman, and Nugent Hopkins on the first line, followed by Dreisaitl, Yamamoto, and either Holloway or Yanmark on the second line. Because when you get Ryan McLeod back, you'd want him in the third line center spot until uh, Hyman gets, or until Kane gets back. Then you could look at possibly moving him up. But I just feel like they they are a tougher team to beat when you can send McDavid and Dreisaitl over the boards in waves and have the the opposition have to go up against that. Yeah, I don't really disagree. I, I guess it does just give me a little bit of the, you know, second guesses if I'm, you know, my second line's dry side like Yamamoto and Yanmark. I don't feel too confident in that. Like Yamamoto's got what one goal this season? True. Y- Yanmark's got one. Like, you know, again, dry can feed you the puck all you want, but at the end of the day, if you're not putting it in the back of the net. I really don't trust you on my second line at all. And that's kind of a, when you look at the Oilers, you know, lines two through four, if you want to go with that, Derek Ryan leads them in scoring with four goals. Like that's yes. kind of, well, outside of Nugent Hopkins, pardon me. But like, I mean, that's <laughs> tough to say, yeah. but that's a reason why I don't want Dreisaitl playing with those guys because he's going to feed, you know, players who aren't going to put the puck in the net. I'm sorry. You make a good point there, and uh, the, yes, the the bottom six needs to contribute more. They they have been chipping in the past week a little more than we've seen earlier this season, but they you need to get more than uh, one goal or two goals a month from from your bottom two lines. Exactly. And that's and that's been a big problem. Where you know if McDavid and Drysaitel have an off night, which they don't have many, but when they do, it almost feels like you're your chances of winning that night are pretty decreased by a massive amount. And um, I don't know, like I think that Nugent Hopkins and Dreisaitl do have good chemistry together. And, and I'm not trying to make excuses for Yamamoto. He does need to score more, but I believe he was playing through something earlier in the season. And then he did miss a month with a, an undisclosed upper body injury. So I think it's fair to say if he was healthy, he might have five or six goals by now. But yes, that's another guy who who needs to get off the schneid and, and start putting a few more pucks in there. And that's fine. Everyone battles injury, but yeah. he's on pace for four goals this season. Yes. You know, if that's if that's where we're finishing, you just gave him 3.1 Schmel. You know, that's that's <laughs> I mean, that's worse than the Pooley contract. And Pooley is going to finish with two or three goals this year. Like <laughs> it's yeah. it's not exactly lovely times in, in Oiler land when you talk about depth forwards. Yamamoto is a streaky scorer, though, and I feel like there will be a stretch this year where he'll get like five goals in 10 games, and then he might kind of go quiet again for a while. But he he does other things, too. Like, I mean, I love him on the penalty kill. I think he was missed, and he does have pretty good hands with the puck, and he can kind of weave his way through the opposition in the offensive zone and set guys up. So there, there are skills that he brings to the table, but it's like you said. There, there needs to be more production from a guy who's making over $3 million a year. He's got a worse points per game than Clem Costin, I believe, <laughs> and he's playing with much better players. Yeah, and Clem That's did go on a really... Yeah, and, and I'll give Clem credit, too. Like He he went on a bit of a, a run there himself where he had four points in five games, including his first Gordie Howe hat-trick. So that's a, that's a player who has really helped since he uh, joined the team in... Uh, I guess it would be early December that he... Or no... Um, Late November, he came up to the team. November, yeah. Yeah. But uh, um, the, the next thing I wanted to just kind of talk to you about, while while we have uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl on mine, so 
McDavid had yet another four-point performance last night, and he's now up to 26 goals and 59 points in just 30 games, which puts him on pace for 71 goals and 162 points in a full 82-game season. McDavid also recorded his 490th career assist last night, passing Glenn Anderson for fourth on the Oilers' all-time assists list. Cody... McDavid has produced offense at this clip for stretches of time before, but now that we're more than a third of the way through the season, do you think he can maintain this pace all year? No. And the simple answer is because games get tougher as you get closer to playoffs. Everyone's going to start playing them harder after the trade deadline. And it's just not a sustainable pace because the game changes that much from November and December to March. Mm -hmm. And I do see what you're saying there. Down the stretch, yes, it, like the, the intensity will ramp up for sure. I'm not saying that he's going to average two points per game for the entire season. But the thing is, they do still have a more favorable schedule coming up. They've played a lot of tough teams so far. And, you know, only two players in the history of the game have ever put up 160 points in a season. Uh, I believe Gretzky did it nine times and Lemieux did it four times. So it's unlikely he reaches that number. But uh, to say he's going to get 70 goals as well. I mean, no one's done that in the past 30 years. Well, where but do you I, think he finishes that? Like well, I mean, 120, even if 130? Yeah, oh, I mean, I think 120 and 130 is is a lock. But even if he slows down a bit... I think he still has a real shot at 60 goals and 150 points. Now, he would need 91 points in the final 52 games to reach 150 points, but I've always believed that there would be at least one season in his career where he'd have 150 points. And if he's going to do it, it'll probably be either this year or next year when he's at the absolute height of his powers. Yeah, I... It's just crazy to think about, right? Like, there's, it is. There, there's so many no different factors here. Yeah, it's been a quarter of the century since someone. Honestly, done and again, it, right? this is going to be a, you know kind of a hot take. Like I, I don't think he, like one thirty. I don't think he hits one thirty this year. That's still. I, I just think that. But he was he had one twenty three last year, so we're only asking him to put up seven more points than he even did uh, a year ago. Yeah, I just I I don't know. I I don't see it happening. But okay. hey, I love to be proved wrong. <laughs> I mean, look. It, in in the last, like we said, 25 years, no one's had 130 points. So you're not really going out on a limb and saying that it would be tough <laughs> to accomplish. But yes, to to put up 160, I think is going to be a Herculean task for him to do. And I I'm, I I doubt that he'll get there. But I just think like you know he's maintained that type of pace that that point and a half game pace that he would need or more. Over the past couple of years, we've seen him do it. And now we're asking him to maintain it for a whole 82 games. It, it would be tough, but I just think that if he, even if he doesn't get to 150, he, he'll get close. Like I would, I'd bet on 140 this year, just because it's almost like he gets two or three or four points every night. I mean, he has 24 points in his last 10 games. So it's just like, I mean, at what point do we, we say like, this is going to be something that he can sustain over a long period of time. If he's going to continue to play with dry sidle, I'll say one thirty is possible. <laughs> I think those two will be split up. The second Evander Kane comes back yeah, and the point drop off is going to happen. And for goal total, what do you think? He's going to hit 50. That's that's not a, like, I don't think that's out of doubt. I mean, Maybe he's already 50. at 26, right? 
Yeah, like so, 55. What do you okay. say? He's on pace for 60? He's on pace for 71. Oh, geez. Okay, great math. Hot hot start there. Well, <laughs> I, I'll stick with 55. I don't know. I mean, again, just a different game. I, I don't. I, I hate putting too much stock into November and December hockey. Like, that's yeah. Toronto Maple Leafs' finest. <laughs> but, like, I... Yeah, I think we don't want to be those guys. 55 goals, 125 points. Like that doesn't seem outrageous. No. And I really feel like he's going to be a 120 or more point player for the next five years. This is going to be like that. When we look back at his career, the the five best years of his career, including last season where he, he had a, a, a career high, 123 points, like I said. So Want a crazier take? I think he's going to do okay. it for the next 10 years. 10 because years? Because the game continues to change. It's okay. just going to get softer. It's going to get more skilled. It's going to get higher scoring. And that favors players like Connor McDavid. Well, you know, I talked about this on a previous podcast as well, where we tried to work out the math. If he had a chance at 2,000 points in his career. And I said that if he could have 120 or more for the next five years, it would set him up really well in his 30s to have a shot at it. If he plays until he's 40 and was a point per game or better player the entire time, he might be able to do it. But if you're saying that he could do it for 10 years, he could even get to 2,000 quicker than that. But again, I mean, look at the trajectory of the game. It's changing. Yeah. Hockey's changing. And it's favoring players like Connor McDavid, which which it should. That's fine. I, I got no issues with that. It's but becoming a faster, more skilled game. And he is the most skilled and he is the fastest. So, you know, exactly. you, make a, you make a good point there. Um, and here's the thing. Even if when he's 35, he isn't the fastest player in the league anymore, I think he'll still probably be one of the top five fastest. I, I don't think he's going to completely lose his speed overnight. He might slow down a little bit because there could be some new 23-year-old kid that's you know caught up to him by then. But that is a weapon that I think he'll have for the majority of his career. Yeah, there's no arguing that. Yeah. Uh, as for goal total, though, I, I think I said uh, early in the year that I, I thought he would push for 60 and uh you know if he if he can get that total plus with you know like we said if i if if my my dream comes right and he gets 140 or more points then i mean that's a season for the ages he, we might be looking at another unanimous mvp two out of three years yeah it should be right like that's <laughs> I, again i don't trust voters but yeah you're bang on well i mean if if the 60 gold number was what won it for Matthews last year? Like, just I, I wonder, you know, if that number was 57 or 58, does he come away with the heart? But the fact that it was 60, I think that really, you know, pushed the vote in his favor. But if Connor has the 60 this year, then that should leave no debate. Exactly. I mean, yeah. So, a- anyway, um, so McDavid and Dreisaitl deservingly get most of the attention in oil country, but Ryan Nugent Hopkins is also quietly having the best season of his career. Uh, he's never had more than 69 points in a season before, but he's on pace for 93 points this year, which also matches his jersey number. Uh, Cody, what are you seeing from Nugent Hopkins right now that's allowing him to have such a strong start? I, th- I think it's just he's getting this opportunity to to be that guy again on a second line and to drive a little bit more. I mean, his power play you know, numbers have always spoke for themselves, but... And for a guy making 5.1 to be clipping along at the pace he is, I, I think that's impressive. And 
you know, he's putting the puck in the back of the net. You know, he's got 14 goals. He's over, you know, 1.13 points per game. Like he's kind of doing it all. He's not just picking up secondary assists here. Like that was, you know, a big knock before. Oh, he's a defensive player. He kind of floats around, you know, he'll chip in with a couple of assists here and there. I, you know, he's proven to be a legit offensive weapon here and a guy who can be super valuable playing on that power play and playing on a top unit with the best players in the world. So I think we're just seeing Nugent Hopkins and everyone wants to talk about like, oh, everyone hits their prime at 27. Well, I, I don't think for Nuge, I, I think, you know, he's still under 30. Like he's not getting old by any means just because he's the longest tenured oiler. Like mm-hmm. there's still time for him to continue to evolve his game. And that's what he's showing this year is that he hasn't peaked yet. I think that's probably the best way I could put it. And so he's kind of proven everyone a little wrong. Yeah. And I think when he first came into the league, he was a little more of an offensive minded player, but I I feel like he never got the opportunity to run free as much as say Taylor Hall or Jordan Eberle did. He always kind of had to be the defensive conscience on that line. And then they sort of evolved him into more of a a two way forward. And, and that's great because like, you know, he brings more to the table than just his offense, but I like to see that some of that creativity is coming back. You know, he's starting to shoot the puck with more confidence. You know, he, he had a, a tough time uh, scoring regularly last season. Well, now he's already passed his goal total for all of last season. And yes, he's still going to pick up a bunch of assists on the power play, but I think his snapshot's really underrated and I want to see him use it more often. Uh, the other thing I'm seeing from Nuge is that, you know, he he seems to be thinking the game like he, like I said, like he was in say 2011 2012 2013 and yes it's great that he's developed into a two-way player and penalty killer but just taking a few more calculated risks offensively and using that creativity that you know made him a first overall pick in the first places is kind of what got him into the league and and what helped him succeed i'm glad to see it coming back yeah i mean i remember you know, seeing him in junior and stuff with Red Deer. And he was obviously just an absolute weapon back then. But he talked about his snapshot. And I think that comes down to, yes, he's got an elite shot. But he's mm-hmm. also, he picks his spots well. You don't see him waste too many opportunities. And that's why, I mean, he's a goal every other game this season. Like, that's, you love that. If that's your second line guy, you'll take that any day. And because McDavid is shooting the puck more a lot on the power play as well, you know, there's so many more shooting options. Like, it, I think. The other team almost used to read it on uh, the power play that the, the the option they were trying to go for was the one-timer to Dreisaitl. And that still is their best shot on the power play. But Connor is a threat to shoot. Nuge has become a threat to shoot. So because they have to respect the shot more, it's opening up chances for other guys. So when he does feather that puck across to one of those guys, there's a better chance that they're open. But also, if those guys are covered, he feels confident taking that shot as well. I think that's fair. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's the the value of having all those different weapons. And I think someone like Zach Hyman just, uh, you know, he helps bring it to that next level because he's such a versatile addition to this oh, team absolutely. that, you know, he, he kind of rounds out that top power play and allows for a little bit more time and space. He allows, you know, Nugent Hopkins to be a little bit more creative. He allows Dreisaitl that second look to have an extra one time where in the past teams were just isoing him right away. And same with McDavid, you know, having Zach Hyman out there makes defenders think twice about, you know, how close their gap is going to be to which guy. And that's why you see the Oilers do have power play success. Yeah. 
And I mean, shout out to Zach Hyman as well for scoring his first career hat trick last night. Uh, just that he's another one of those guys in that five to six million dollar range where you've got Nugent Hopkins, Hyman, and Evander Kane. And those guys are all point per game players this year. And of course, Kane, a much smaller sample size because he got hurt in early November. But that's just tremendous value from your third, fourth, and fifth best forwards on the team. Which is what you need, right? Guys in that four to six million dollar range that obviously help. But where it can also hurt you is that two to four million dollar range. And that's right now where the Oilers are seeing, you know, they're when you look up and down at championship rosters and you look at Tampa Bay, Colorado, yeah. go back to St. Louis, you know, that four to six million dollar range, they had guys overproduce. That two to four million dollar mm-hmm. range, they had guys live up to expectation or well, that's why they you lost know, play them, up right? to their full ability. Everyone. And hundred percent, you are going to lose your Blake Coleman's, you know, you got guys like that, but for the Oilers, it's just rounding out this depth. And then that's what Ken Holland has the task of doing next. And let's hope that some prospects coming in on cheap deals will do that. I mean, I know Dylan Holloway's up here right now, and uh, he has the potential to be a top six forward for them down the road. Uh, I mean, he's got, you know, great puck skills. He's got good speed. Uh, He's, somewhat physical big body i mean that's a guy who i could eventually see fitting into the top six this year i i don't think it's quite there yet and you know you could make the case that he you know would be better suited playing down with the bakersfield condors but there are games that you you're happy to have him and, and if this team was entirely healthy maybe he wouldn't be here but well, no but, i i make the argument the other way if this team was fully healthy i'd want to see holloway on that third line okay with the guys and get, that's probably that where he'd be down. better you know, because I don't want to see him line. on the third line playing with Yesa Pugliarvi. It looks like he's using a shovel out there half the time. Or, I mean, James Hamlin as a center, Devin Shore, whatever. Like, I'm not saying these guys are terrible players, but right. I don't think that they make Dylan Holloway elevate his game as much as you would hope. And that's what develops a guy, right? So if Holloway's playing with guys like Matthias Yanmark, maybe Nuge goes down to center line three again for a bit or whatever. I, I don't know. I just feel like that's what Dylan Holloway needs. It's yeah. not to be playing with a bunch of AHL players on the third line. No, and that's a good point too. I mean, we look, we saw him dominate at the rookie tournament in Penticton. He had a great preseason as well, scoring a hat trick in a game against Vancouver. But now you come in and you're playing against regular NHL lineups night after night and going up against, you know, some of the best defensemen in the world. And it, it's different than going up against AHL defenders or prospects. And it might take him a year or two to really find his step at the NHL level where he's producing on a consistent basis. But I just, you know, I look at the body of work that he had in the, in college hockey and just, you see the skills are there. I just think it's a matter of when it all clicks. I think he's going to be a really productive player for this team. Yeah. I again, I think that's a great breakdown. (laughs) Okay. So We've already sort of mentioned it, but we'll we'll get to this now. Uh, Jesse Pugliarvi has been the subject of trade rumors for you know the past three years now, really, and those rumors have really started to pick up as of late. And the thing is, when Pugliarvi first came back to the Oilers from Finland two years ago, he seemed to be on the right track and and looked better than he did during his first run with the club. And then last season, he started off really hot with 24 points in his first 28 games before cooling down. Uh, down the stretch but 
This year, he only has one goal in 30 games, and it seems like this will probably be his last season in Edmonton. Cody, do you see a trade happening in season, or is this more likely something that's going to happen in the summer? Who's trading for him? I, I mean, at this point, it's like, what do you get? Like, I, I remember there was talks in the offseason about like, oh, maybe they want a second rounder for right. him. I was always even like a third round pick. Like, yeah, that's probably about as high as you would go. Right now, is there teams lining up to give the Oilers a third round pick for Yessa Puliarvi? But then there's also just... the people who say that, well, what if he turns into the next Valeri Nachushkin with his next team? Good. Fill your boots. It's not happening in Edmonton. It's never going to happen in Edmonton. So stop waiting and, you know, looking into these stupid analytics that are just like, they're totally muddling people's opinions about guys where it's just like, well, he could be useful in this role or he could be useful in this. We're going to go through RFA status every single season with Pugliarvi with people justifying that he's a three plus million dollar player. Yeah. And he's going to be an inefficient third liner on the Oilers. So why do you want that? It, he's not developing into anything else. He's just right now, he's a waste of groceries in a lot of aspects. And so get rid of him. Put someone in that position. Like we, we talked about the guys who are coming up from Bakersfield on entry-level mm-hmm. deals. You can I, I have a hard time believing you can't find someone who would – this is a hot take. Would you rather see Brad Malone? up than Yessa Pugliarvi right now. Like, I get it. Malone's not going to do a lot for you, but I think he also plays the left side. But, like, Pugliarvi is just, he doesn't move the needle for me at all. And the longer that you hold on to him, his value is going to diminish. And, I mean, he's probably a fourth-round pick after this season. Yeah. I, I mean, he's a likable guy and a popular player with fans. And, you know, I think that's debatable. Come- I think it's such a small group that just loves them. Like everyone's like, yeah. oh, it's it's a loud minority or whatever you want to call okay. it. Like we're in the same Twitter space. I, I know yeah. exactly what you're coming from. We're like, there's people who will defend him to he no is the end. Bison King. You know, he's got that nickname. And But like, I mean, like I've always cheered for the guy since the day he was drafted. I wanted it to work out here. But it seems like we've come to a point where both sides are looking to move on. And, you know, that's unfortunate because this is a player the organization invested a fourth overall pick in. And for Pugliarvi, you know, he can help the team in other ways. Like, he does protect the puck well. He can extend plays. Uh, You'd love to see him have five goals or more by now instead of just one tip-in goal that he had about a month ago. But with Kyler Yamamoto potentially holding down one spot in the top six on the right side and Xavier Borgo on the way... There probably isn't an opportunity for Pugliarvi to ever be elevated in the lineup to where he'd like to be. And the thing is, you've got other guys like Ryan McLeod, who needs a new contract next offseason, Evan Bouchard. So the money that he's making, you probably want to allocate to those guys anyway. But the, the thing is, I just don't want to see him traded for another team's reclamation project. I would prefer if the Oilers could package him in a deal to bring in a bigger piece. Like if the Oilers want to trade for Patrick Kane or Jonathan Taves in Chicago, they're probably going to need to send out some money the other way to make them fit under the cap. So maybe the Oilers could find a deal that includes Pugliarvi as well as a high draft pick and a prospect to bring in one of those two or another marquee rental at the deadline. Does that really help your draft pick value? Like if you package a first and Pugliarvi, it almost feels like it diminishes that first rounder in a sense of, I get it. You're trying to dish out money. Well, that's it. Like your move. I don't know how much 
the but Black then just get rid of Yasa Pujarvi for a fourth rounder and flip that first for you know someone of value, as you said. Well, you can do it that way too, or maybe you try and get Arizona involved or or another team as a, a to make a three way deal here. But basically, what I'm saying is, if he does. Well, if you're bringing in a $10 million player like those guys, even if it is on the final year of their deal, you're going to have to need some salary retention from the Blackhawks. Plus, you need to send out a contract. I just think that you know, if he had to be the one to go, then you're, at least you're getting the $3 million off the books to fit in a guy who is immediately going to play in your top six, like a Patrick Kane, or be your third-line center in Jonathan Taves. And now you're much stronger up front. So I just... Totally fair. I I just see if he's going to be the one to go, whether it's Mm -hmm. in two separate deals or just one deal, that's that's where they're probably going to be looking to clear money, I would think. Yeah, that that sense makes, you know, definitely you're going to have to move if if move some money if you want to bring in a big name. Do you see any other imminent moves or do you think that it's going to be more? Ken Holland will go through his usual routine of bringing in one or two guys at the deadline. Well, I would be shocked if Warren Fogle is a part of this team, you know, past the deadline. I really? feel like that's, that's an obvious, you know, you, you get a well, chance to shed $3 million dollars, yeah. and you're probably going to have to package in a, a pick or a prospect, but it's a salary cap world right now. And if the Oilers do want to add and make a run for it, you kind of got to get rid of that dead weight. And that's Warren Fogle right now. Like he's not at that effective of a third line player for you. So do you want a $3 million guy on your fourth line? Probably not because if you don't have him there and he's out of your lineup or he's out of your, off your tab, you can have a better top six. So well, I, I can they- see them packaging and get rid of him. Yeah. And I mean, they do have a lot of high earning players. So you want to have as many cheap contracts on the team as you can. And who knows, maybe Pugliarvi and Fogel both go. You know, I'm not trying to run them out of town or anything, but it's like you're saying, these are the type of moves that they'd have to make if they're going to try to fit in one, if not multiple uh, additions at the deadline. Like, I'd love to see them bring in a defenseman and a forward, ideally. So, I mean, if Patrick Kane's coming in, just as I'll throw it out there, um, you know, that's 50% retention plus, you know, sending out money. Well, now what if you want to try and go for Jacob Chikrin? And, you know, that's another one that always gets talked about by Oilers fans. I'll just ask you while, while we're on it, you know, this rumor has been going on forever. It seems like, do you think there's any smoke there or do you see Chikrin as, as just kind of like a pipe dream? Well, some people want to say where there's smoke, there's fire, but I also think you should check that smoke and make sure it's not just dust. And so that's where I think for the Oilers, you can kick around as much as you want. End of the day, I don't think they can offer a package better than other teams. So I have a hard time believing Arizona is going to be fine handing them off to Ken Holland when I have to believe that there's other teams able to put a better package together than Edmonton can. Yeah, and, and the rumors are that they want two first-round picks, a second, and a good prospect. I mean, I know the Oilers need help on defense, but that seems like a big ask to get a, a second-pairing defenseman. But that could almost make sense for a team who is making that last second or last effort push. Like, if a team like Pittsburgh is sitting good come playoff time and they're like, hey, are we going to go for one more run with Crosby and Malkin? It's going to mean that we're going to be, you know, dust for the next 
five <laughs> years, whatever. Like that would make sense then to mortgage the farm for that and being like, we're going for one more run. I don't care what it costs. Sorry, guys. Sorry, fans. It's going to suck, but we're going to have a great playoffs here. And, you know, that's the ultimate goal, too. And if you bring in a Stanley Cup, I think it's a lot easier to stomach five plus years of being a bottom feeder if you have that championship in your pocket. Well, ask L.A. Yeah. Pretty easy to stomach for them. (laughs) And I mean, that's the goal for the Oilers, too. Like in this next window, like McDavid is under contract for four more years, including this year. Drysaddle's under contract for three more years. I'm still always believing that they're going to re-sign here. But Drysaddle's next contract, how much is it? What if for one, like it, twelve it, million? Okay, I, I want that. I said it at least that. But what if it's even thirteen? What if there's that one year where he makes more than Connor, and then the next year Connor gets his big deal? So I just kind of see something like that potentially happening, and hopefully the salary cut cap is 90 million by that point as well but still when you're taking on even bigger contracts you're going to need some cheap ones too and so like you're trying to fit in a chicken and under this and giving away a bunch of assets it'd be pretty tough you would almost have to find a way for them to take barry and yeah. what's barry got this year and another one i think right. at like four and a half so again you could make the numbers work I'm just saying, I think if he is actually in play, the Oilers aren't going to put together a better package than probably half a dozen other teams. How much value do you put in the guys that are tight with the core? Like, I mean, Tyson Berry seems to be pretty tight with McDavid and those guys. Like, I I know putting together a winning team and, and the best team possible is the most important thing. But does subtracting someone from the room who is really good with your core group and still does produce. Like let's not let's not say Tyson Berry isn't an offensive defenseman. I know he has his well, defensive leads the team points yeah. for a defenseman. But has his defensive deficiencies. Just how how much stock do you put into taking someone out of the dressing room that's a popular teammate? Well I think you gotta put a lot of stock into it, but also none of us are in the room on a daily basis. No one in media is so right. That's that's just a uh, you know it's a good question it's something you you got to consider but it's also not something any of us can answer it's only yeah. something that the coach that the star players can really decide how much of an impact that relationship has yeah and I know that um, Darnell Nurse is a lightning rod for criticism in Edmonton too and every time he makes um, a poor play with the puck or a giveaway. He just gets lit up on Twitter and his salary, or, you know, his $9.25 million salary gets brought up. But it's just, you know, I think he is still the Oilers' best defenseman, in my opinion. I know some people say, oh, CeCe's having this great year and everything, too. But in terms of their best overall defenseman, Darnell Nurse is on pace for 45 points this year. He leads the team with a plus 13 rating. You know, yes, does does he sometimes make a bad pass or does he give away the puck? Sure. But I think that until they have a better defenseman than Darnell Nurse, how can they get rid of him? I mean, where would the left side be without him if he went down with an injury? No, he's the best defender on the team. Yes. Again, it's it's the same idiots that are trying to justify stupid takes that are the ones right. that are being like, Darnell Nurse is terrible. What were you going to do? Not pay him? 
Was, he exactly. got $9 million on 31 other teams. I mean, sure. Did the Oilers kick the can down the road a few too many times bridging him? Yes, they did. And should they have locked him up to a $7 million deal two years earlier? That probably would have been more ideal. I think if Darnell Nurse is playing at $7 million instead of 9 plus, it's a lot yeah, but no one expected him to go and have a career year offensively, right? No. Like you can't predict that. You can't just look no. in hindsight and be like, well, if we would have just given him an eight-year deal, like, you know, three years ago, he would have been set. Well, no kidding. Then everyone would be the best GM in the mm-hmm. world. You know, there's not- so many delusional fans out there being like, well, for that money, we could have these guys and stuff. Like that's not how being an NHL GM works. That's how yeah. playing stupid video games works. <laughs> not real life. And let's not forget that through no fault of their own, the Oilers lost their top pairing. Uh, Oscar Clefbaum had a career-ending injury, and you know, unfortunately, he was done in the NHL at age 27. Uh, and Adam Larson was lost in the expansion draft. It's just you know, losing those two guys forced the Oilers to f- really fill in some pretty significant gaps on the back end the best they could. And I know people will still criticize Ken Holland for the job he's done, but if he still had those two pieces, I think that this blue line's looking a lot better. Definitely. But then again, it's still hindsight. It's like, well, if you do right. have those two pieces, who are you going to lose? You're going to lose CC, you, you know, Barry. I don't, I, again, it's, it's such a, yeah, it would be awesome to have them if they're going to be healthy and in their prime, but you've got to subtract now eight, 9 million off that yeah. roster somewhere. And, and it's just like when, uh, Holland signed Cassie into that four-year extension. I mean, should he have waited to the offseason to sign him? Probably. I think that would have been ideal. But let's not forget that that was two months before COVID hit. So how could Ken Holland foresee that a global pandemic was going to hit and that the salary cap wasn't going to move up when it was projected to have a pretty significant jump that offseason? So there's there's all these things that kind of factored in and forced the Oilers management group to make decisions on the fly because they thought they were going to have more cap space than they did. And just to kind of tie into my point about Nurse, that's another guy who is really tight with the group. I mean, as far as we can tell, he's best friends with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. And I think the chance of Darnell Nurse playing here for the next eight years increases the chances of McDavid and Dreisaitl being here for the next eight years as well. Thousand percent. And that's all the stuff inside the room mm-hmm. that we don't have firsthand knowledge of. We can guess, we can assume things, not always going to be right. But I do think that there is a lot of stock made in what does the core want and what they want, they get. Right. And I will just say, I know this has to do with nothing on the ice, but I met Darnell Nurse at a Blue Jays game five years ago. And we had about a 10 minute conversation. And I can tell you, nicest guy in the world. Uh, he was asking me questions about myself. You know, how how many interactions do you have with a professional athlete where it's not like the fan just kind of asking him a bunch of stuff, but he's actually conversing with you and, and like getting to know me as well, which I never even expect is, but I'll just say one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And that's awesome. That's, and again, there's a lot of those stories with people who do really like Darnell Nurse's presence and he does a lot of good around the Edmonton area as well. So uh, it's not really a surprise, but there's also, again, it's that loud minority who is the ones trying to run out of town because of the deal he was offered. Exactly. And who's going to turn down the the money that they were, they were offered. It's almost like he should have said, no, I'll take less. Yeah. That's not how the NHL works. Yeah. Now Connor McDavid did leave 
reportedly two and a half million on the table when he signed his twelve and a half million dollar deal. But uh, I mean, that's a, a different story. I mean, he's in a different stratosphere than everyone else in terms of earning potential. So I think with all the commercials and knowing that there's probably another hundred million dollar contract waiting for him after he finishes this one, that he was all right to leave uh, uh, the GM a couple million extra to work with. Yeah, I think he'll do all right for himself. And, you know, anything that he probably passes up on in real salary, I'm sure Dale Cates and company can get him a couple of nice endorsement deals to fill his fridge. (laughs) Exactly. All right, man. Well, I just want to wrap up the show today by just talking about some news that uh, broke the other day. So Edmonton City Council voted in favor of demolishing Northland's Coliseum on Monday. And even though the Oilers haven't played there in seven years, I still think some Oilers fans will be sad to see it go. I mean, it was a building the Oilers won four Stanley Cups in and set countless NHL records in the process. So I'm just wondering, do you have a favorite memory from Northland's Coliseum? You know, it was my first Oilers game and it was in Edmonton and it was a battle of Alberta. Now I I really hope no one's fact checking me here, but I do think that it was a four or five, nothing. I believe Yoni Ordeo was the goaltender for Calgary who pitched the shutout. And I I mean, this was like, what are we talking? 2013. Okay. Oh, maybe 2014 ish around then. I don't know. I'm so bad with years and stuff like that. Like this is still 10 years ago or so. And right. that's all I remember. It was my first time in Rexall, first time in the old barn battle nice. of Alberta, all this hype and the Calgary flames just laid an absolute pumping on the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, well, I mean, that was a tough, tough era of Oilers hockey. And I, I mean, I was a university student in Calgary at that time. So I, I know what it was like to be a, an Oilers fan in enemy territory during the decade of darkness. But uh, I mean, my first time at uh, Northlands Coliseum, then Rexall Place, was uh, I, I remember it was also against the Flames, and it was April first, two thousand six. So they uh, they lost four one that night, but uh, thankfully that season uh, ended on a little better note than the Flames did. <laughs> that is true. That's hey, you can hang your hat on that for sure. <laughs> And I did go to one other Battle of Alberta in my life, and that was actually the last game of the 2018-19 season. And that is a very memorable game for two reasons. I got to see Leon Dreisaitl score his 50th goal of the season live. So for a short period of time, I was extremely excited. And then that excitement all went away when Connor McDavid suffered a torn MCL yeah. when he crashed into the post. So it's a bittersweet night for uh, for myself because uh, I uh, I have one great memory and one terrible memory from that night. People have just glazed over that McDavid injury. Like you remember seeing the documentary on it? I do. In like, that was actually was so wild. And like it was, yeah, it was, it was unbelievably done, but like people have just so like glazed over it still. Like if you were to bring that back now, I think it breaks the internet again, but people have just forgotten about it. Yes. I thought he should have won the Masterton that year. And I didn't want to take anything away from a player who had cancer and came back to the NHL or a player who was recovering from um, a personal issue that was going on in their life and they were able to resume their career. But I just thought, for what that guy did to reject having a surgery that would have kept him out of action for 10 months and say, I'm going to take a shot and rehab it. And the doctors told him there's 
not a hundred percent chance that this is going to work. Like you may try to rehab it and it doesn't go properly. And we still have to do the surgery after that, in which case you're missing an entire season. And he rolled the dice and said, okay, I'm going to rehab it for six months on my own and did not miss a single game from that injury. He was back for the season opener against the Vancouver Canucks in 2019, 20. Oh, it's nuts. It's again, that's it's one thing that everyone forgets about. And yeah, eh, it's always, it's always, it's fun to bring it back up. And then he had 97 points in 64 games before the season was cut short due to the pandemic that year. I mean, to come back and finish second in the league in scoring behind only Leon Dreisaitl after that type of an injury, I just thought, I mean, potentially career-altering injury, comes back to the league, finishes top two in the league in scoring, that probably should win you a Masterton. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think he's losing too much sleep over a master. No. And I don't think too many people are, but I can I see know. the argument being made. Exactly. He'll he'll live with his uh, his four Art Rosses, soon to be five, uh, two Hearts, three Lindsays, which he'll add one of each to those to his uh, trophy case this year, and uh, a first Rocket Richard, I think. By the way, I didn't but, ask that, but you 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 think he's winning the Rocket, right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's yeah. no way he doesn't. I I just feel like players of his ilk, they. Like, yes, I'm sure he he loves the the four art Rosses he's he has. But I think the the guys like him look at the rocket and say, yeah, I want that one, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think everyone looks at it and says, yeah, that would be nice. But end of the day, I think if you ask McDavid what he's worried about, it's just how am I going to get a cup? How are we going to win a Stanley Cup? How are we going to get over the hump? Like, you know, yes, personal accolades are awesome, but these guys are so dialed in. They're the best of the best for a reason, and they are zoned in on one thing and one thing only. Without a doubt. I mean, he's so driven to win. I I don't know if there's a player with a more intense internal drive to succeed in the NHL than him. And that's just going from, you know, surface level what we see. But you you can just tell that he has that intensity and, and drive to to win at least like no one else on the Oilers and, you know, come playoff time. Look what we saw last year. Exactly. Yeah. And there's I'm hoping, n- sorry, go oh, ahead. No, there's just, no, there's nothing like him. Like that's yeah. when he wants to change a game. Boom. And I guess now the, the real question comes, did they learn from that loss to Colorado? Yeah. Or is that really this team's ceiling? Well, when, the, when this team gets healthy and if they're able to make one or two meaningful additions, then, you know, I, I think they're going to be ready to roll for the playoffs. And and I'll just add in, if, if there's one individual trophy that I think he wants the most this year, it's the Conn Smythe, because that probably accompanies the Stanley Cup. That's fair. Awesome. Well, listen, Cody, I really appreciate you being on the show today. It was fun talking to you, and I hope you'll be back again sometime. Always a pleasure, Eric. And I'm sure most people listening to this podcast already follow you on Twitter, but if they don't, where can they find you? At Janner on PXP. Okay, so everybody, please go follow Cody. Cody, good luck for the rest of the rush season, and we'll talk to you again sometime. Take care. Thanks, man. So for Cody Jansen, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.